You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. And welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South. So good to see you all here. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the elders here. It's good to be with you this morning in worship. We're in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. And so you can open up your Bible. This is another one. Of, there's a few of these in Genesis, but it's another one of those chapters where the subject material is pretty intense. Um, it's, it's pretty intense. It's subject material definitely for, um, for, for adults. Um, and so if that is just putting that out there, if you need to um, make any um, decisions based on that. Um, we kicked off our series last week, our last preaching series in Genesis with the, uh, the story of Joseph in chapter 37. And, um, and as we saw, God chose him out of his family of 12 brothers and sisters to rule, to rule, to be the hero, the rescuer of his family, the rescuer of God's people, and really point us forward to the coming king, Jesus. Uh, we saw the way that God uses both bad guys and good guys to, to do the things that he sets out to do. And at the end of the chapter, we saw Joseph gets sold to this caravan of traders, and they're taking him down to Egypt. And he ends up in the house of one of the most powerful people in Egypt, a guy called Potiphar. And we'll pick up his story again next week. Um, but as we would have it, as the, the Bible is laid out, we go through chapter by chapter. We don't want to skip over chapter 38. Um, Moses, the narrator, the compiler of these accounts, these historical accounts, um, he doesn't follow Joseph immediately to Egypt. He takes us to another character, another event, another scene that he wants us to see. And the main characters in this story are a guy called Judah, one of the brothers. He's the fourthborn. Um, he, if you might remember from last week, he's the guy who concocted the plan to not kill Joseph but sell him uh, for money. Um, he's the main character in this chapter, in chapter 38. But he's not the hero. He's not the hero of this story. In fact, he's the anti-hero of this story. The real hero of chapter 38 is his daughter-in-law, a woman called Tamar. And she's a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. And she's the hero of this chapter. And so I'm really, um, it's, it's really important that we look at her story. This chapter is another one of those tough ones, like I said, like chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 38, the story of Dinah. It's very uncomfortable. It's one that in some ways we might wish we could just skip over um, and get to the story of Joseph um, and his heroism. This story is messy. It's raw. It's not a feel-good story at all. It's awkward. Um, but as Paul tells Timothy, you might know this verse, he says, all scripture all of it is inspired by God. All of it's profitable for teaching. All of it is profitable for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we want to find the prophet in this story today. Not prophet as in like the person, the title, but prophet, the benefit. We want to benefit from this text. We want to be trained by it. We want to be equipped by it. So let's, let's pray uh, to that end. All right, join me as we pray this morning. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you got us up out of bed. Um, even though we are lacking an hour of sleep, Lord, you are our strength. You're our joy. Your mercy is new this morning as we come to gather around your word. So, Lord, would you feed us, feed our souls? Um, teach us what you would have us to or help us see what you want us to see. 
and know what you'd have us know, Lord, that we might be equipped for every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start reading uh, chapter 38. I'm going to read just verse 1 down through verse 11. So uh, follow along. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was a Chezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as your bro- her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Okay, I said the story is going to be a little uncomfortable. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's explain this. Start with verse 1. Judah, he's the anti-hero. He goes out on his own. He leaves his family. Which we are, So already you should be thinking, okay, this is probably not going to turn out well. And if you were thinking that, you'd be right. Um, he goes away from the family of promise. And what is the first thing he does? He marries a Canaanite. Do you remember who else in the story of Genesis married a Canaanite? You remember? A guy called Esau. And Esau was the one who, he sold his blessing, he sold his birthright, he was not a good guy. And so Judah here, if you follow in the story, he marries a Canaanite, you know, this is not good. This is not going to be a good thing. Uh, We know from chapter 34 that Canaanite men taking Israelite women in marriage also doesn't turn turn out well. But then Judah, who's now basically, if you remember, the de facto leader of the family, I don't know if you remember why, but Reuben was the firstborn, and he committed adultery with one of his father's wives. And then Levi and Simeon, the second and thirdborns, they um, committed a a, a genocide, basically, in a town. And so the the three of them have forfeited the right to be the firstborn. And so it falls on Judah, number four. And here we see him marrying a Canaanite, a pagan, someone who does not know or worship God. And you look in verse 2, again, when he sees, it says, the daughter of Shua... Shua is the, is the mother-in-law. We don't know his wife's name. Her name's never given. Um, and it says that he saw her and then took her as a wife. It, every time you see that language in Genesis, he saw, and it's, it's almost always he, except for one, t- one time in chapter 3, he saw, he took. What's it meant to make us think of? It's meant to think, make us think of Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw the fruit, was pleasing to the eye, she saw it, and she took it, and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband. That's what it's meant to make us think. This is not good. This is the hallmark of serpent-like behavior. You see something that you think will make you happy, and you take it. Don't, you, don't, you don't ask God about it. You don't worry if it's good or bad. You just see it. You take it. Verses 3 to 5. Everything seems to be going fairly okay for Judah. His wife gives birth to three sons. So in verse 6, Judah takes on his duty as a father, and he gets his firstborn son, a wife. This woman, we actually get to learn her name. Her name's Tamar. But then in verse 7, the serpent-like 
characteristics of Judah's family come to the surface, show itself. Um, it says that Ur was evil in the sight of God. Maybe not in the sight of the Canaanites, but he was evil in the sight of God, and so God strikes him dead. We don't know what he did. But if you think about all the other people that have been ended up dead for their sin in Genesis, the people who died in the flood, uh, the people who died at Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife, these are people who were so in love with their sin that they would cling tightly to their sin rather than be rescued by God and, and submit to him. Their hearts are stone cold. So that must be what's happening with Ur here. Um, and later his younger brother Onan. So let's, let's talk about him. His dad tells him in verse 8, he says, to marry and sleep with Tamar in order to carry on his dead brother's line. Now that might sound weird to us, but this was a super normal custom back in the day. It was actually written into law, we'll see this later, that if you, your older sibling, uh, your older brother dies and you're not, then you take his what widow to be your wife, and then you carry, you have children that will then receive the inheritance of, in this case, the firstborn. It's called a custom called leveret marriage. It was super normal, and so dad asks him to do it, and he says okay. But then what does he do? He says okay to dad, but then when he actually goes and sleeps with her, he doesn't. He he does a such he does it in a way that she's never going to get pregnant. She's never going to get pregnant. And so he's disobedient. Dad didn't see it, but God saw it. And what happens? Onan is struck dead. For the, the Jacob's sons, the first one, disqualified. The second and third one, disqualified. The fourth one, about to disqualify himself. Same thing is happening in the next generation. One son, gone. Second son, gone because of sin. Um, we need to call this, though, what it is. I, I want you to see what this is. This actually, what Onan is doing to Tamar here is a form, if we would, by definitions today, this is actually a form of domestic violence. You think, wait, there's no physical contact here. However, this is something known as economic or financial abuse. Let me, let me tell you why. Okay? Onan is taking away from Tamar the one means that she has to be financially independent, to not be destitute and dependent on her father-in-law for the rest of her life. He steals that from her. And he does it in a way to make himself look not look bad, to cover his tracks. I don't, I don't know if you know of any situations like this today where um, a man is controlling, well, it could be a woman too, but usually a man, uh, controlling a woman's finances or a child's finances or any vulnerable person to keep them dependent forever. Um, and by definition, legally, this is a form of domestic violence. And we recognize this in our society as a heinous crime. That's, that's what's going on here. What does God think of it? Well, verse 10, what he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. That's how serious this kind of treatment of a woman, a treatment of a vulnerable person is to God. It deserved the death penalty. Vulnerable people, though, um, are not considered righteous just because they're vulnerable, but vulnerable people do suffer the most from the consequences of sin. We see this over and over again. That's what makes them vulnerable. Every, you know, every person who is weak and vulnerable in the world, God sees them. He loves them. He protects them. He takes steps actively. If you remember Hagar, the story of Hagar, when Abraham and Sarah treated her and her son so terribly, 
basically expelled them from the family, sent them to die in the desert. And God sends an angel and he sees her and he cares for her and he makes promises to her son, devises this plan to save her life. And, and, and God spares Tamar here. God spares her from the humiliation and the indignity of how she's treated by the family of promise, by Judah and his sons. God has not lowered the bar at all. Jesus says, you, the way that you treat vulnerable people today, just like then, if you mistreat vulnerable people, that is a crime worthy of death, period. He said, Jesus said this, he said, the way that you treat people who are weak and vulnerable is the way that you would treat me if I was in the room. That's what he said in Matthew 25 in the story of the sheep and the goats. The, the letter of James gives us a definition of religion. Religion is kind of a bad word to most of us. We think, oh, no, you know, it's not religion, it's relationship. But then you come to James chapter 1, and God says, actually, I'm not done with religion. I just don't like false religion. I don't like hypocritical religion. What is true religion? What's pure religion? He gives us definition, James 1, 27. He says, Pure religion is this. It's to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James isn't saying here that you do that and that makes you acceptable to God, that it's like a second way of salvation. No. He's saying that the way that you treat vulnerable people is evidence that you've been saved by him, that you belong to him because that's his heart. And his heart becomes our heart if we are truly saved. Verse 11, see what Judah does. He's exposing his heart in this over and over again. He refuses to give his youngest son, Sheila, which is a weird name for a dude, but okay. Um, he refuses to give him to um, Tamar. He looks at her as kind of like a black widow, thinking it's her fault that the oldest two died. She's damaged good, her goods. Her welfare doesn't matter. He's only caring now about his youngest son not the vulnerable woman locked away in his house. Everyone is born a sinner. We see this over and over again in Genesis. But right here we see that sin hurts vulnerable people the most. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira the Dolomite went up to Timnah and to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went to her, over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat for my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? He asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked them, all the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is beside the road at Anayim? 
There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah, saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Now, at this point, it seems pretty hopeless for Tamar. I mean, Judah has no plans of giving her his youngest son. And in verse 12, we know he can't have any more kids because his wife dies. Or at least we assume he can't have any more kids. And so you'd think the next logical thing would be him going out and finding a wife for his youngest son. But that's not what happens. He goes to check on the family business. He goes to look at the, you know, check out the sheep, see how things are going. Um, as soon as he's done, mourning his wife, he goes, to, he goes out, and uh, Tamar overhears that he's going on this trip, and uh, so she devises a plot to rescue herself, not only herself, but also to rescue her father-in-law from dying without an heir. Because at this point, he has no heir. His, his youngest son is not married, doesn't have any kids. At this point, there's no indication that Tamar knows God that she knows the God of Israel or worships him. She's a Canaanite. But despite how horribly she's been treated by Judah's family, the family of promise, she sets in motion a plan to repay the evil that she has received with good. Now, please don't hear me say at any point that I am condoning prostitution, Disguising yourself to sleep with someone who would otherwise not want to sleep with you or having sex outside of marriage at all. None of those things is remotely okay. But in this instance, what we need to see in the text is we need to see Tamar's motivation. She deceives her father-in-law to thinking that she was a prostitute by the side of the road in order to do something that was not only good for herself, but good for him as well. And eventually, we're going to see what she did is going to be good for us too in this room. Starting in verse 16, we see how smart she is. Judah goes to her. He propositions her. By this, we can assume this is probably not the first time he's gone to a prostitute. It's a bit of a habit for him. She asks him for money. He promises a goat, and then wisely, she asks him for a security deposit. She wants his signet ring, his cord, and his staff. Why those things? Well, those things would be the equivalent today of a man's wallet, of his driver's license. It's his ID. These are the things he needed to do business, to prove his identity. Judah gives her the items. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. The whole time, he had no idea who she was. Now, verse 20, it's almost surprising that Judah is going to make good on his word and send a goat to her, but of course he does need his wallet and ID back. We get the detail in verse 21. It says, when Judah's friend who went to look for her asks, he asked the townspeople for the, quote, cult prostitute. Well, what is, what is that? What's a cult prostitute? Well, cult prostitutes were somewhat common in those days in the ancient world. They're people who would offer their services for religious reasons for religious reasons. Maybe it was part of a ritual that would, people would go to the cult prostitute uh, and, and, and pay for her services in order to have a good harvest. Um, using sex as a means to manipulate the gods, um, it, it really is, I think, peak human ignorance. But we see it here in the Bible. We see it in the ancient world. 
Judah, of the family of promise, he's, he's engaging in it right here. And the shame, it just keeps piling up, doesn't it? Judah's friend goes to find her, can't find her, and then has to admit to his friend that he's been tricked in order to keep from becoming the laughingstock, the butt of all the jokes in the family. It's shameful. Now you think, well, I've never done anything like that. I'm glad. You might not be able to relate to Judith. Maybe you have. But I guess just think of it as here's a man who is just at the absolute rock bottom of shame. Just be feeling what he's feeling. Even if you haven't done what he's done, you've probably felt what he's feeling. He's, he's at rock bottom. He has no air. He has no hope. And now he's been tricked by some random prostitute. He's lost his wallet. He's lost his ID. And his best friend knows about it. And now they have to cover it up. Just so much shame. But see, that's what the lies of the serpent do to us. It's what sin does to us. When we think that we can save ourselves, that we can make ourselves happy without God, and you think maybe now God is going to come along with some big, I told you so. What's wrong with you, you dirty old man? But that's not what happens at all. No. See, God does not overcome shame. He doesn't overcome Judah's shame, yours or mine, by heaping on more shame. That's not how he works. God overcomes shame with kindness. His kindness leads to repentance. It's kindness. And see, Jude is about to experience this in a big way. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, out came his brother, and she said, what a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. Now, verse 24 of Genesis 38 was probably one of, is probably, I think, one of the most ironic and maddening verses in the Bible, maybe the Old Testament. Here's Judah, the man who orchestrated selling his brother into slavery. The man who refused to do right by his daughter-in-law and give her the son the, or the husband that was rightfully hers. The man who hired a cult prostitute and lost his wallet and ID to one. Now, when he finds out that Tamar, who he has mistreated, is pregnant by some unknown fellow, what happens? He wants her destroyed. Isn't that another picture of how sin works? We think that often we can undo the shame or at least lessen the shame that we feel for our own sin by turning the spotlight onto somebody else. I, let's not, I, I can't bear to think about my sin. I can't fix my sin. So let me think about yours. That'll help. 
That's what he does. If we see this all the time, it's so, it's so crushing, right? When you find particularly Christian folks or people who claim to be Christian who are super judgmental, super condemning of particular sins, only to find out, guess what? The thing that they're most condemning of in other people is the very thing that they're guilty of themselves. Why does this happen? Why does it happen? Because it's human nature. It's the sin nature. We think that by condemning the sin in other people, that it will make the pain and the shame and the guilt go away in ourselves. That's what Judah does. Judah wants Tamar to burn for the very crime that he himself committed. Verse 24 is one of the most maddening verses in the Bible. Then verse 25 has to be one of the most satisfying. I don't know if any of you, this is going to date me a little bit, but if any of you ever watched the movie from the 1980s, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, there's a scene toward the end of the movie where um, Ferris's older sister um, confronts Mr. Rooney, who's the principal of the high school, who has just broken into their home to try to prove that Ferris has skipped school. When he breaks in, he gets attacked by the family dog, and the dog gets his wallet, or he drops his wallet in the, in the ruckus, and... Uh, Older sister, she finds it. There's a confrontation. She just looks at him, holds up the torn wallet, and says, are you looking for this? It's a little bit what's going on here. In the movie, she takes the wallet, and she chucks it over the fence to the dog, and then he has to go get it. Tamar is not that mean here. Um, he, she just simply holds up the ring, the cord, the staff, and says to Judah, you looking for these? These things belong to the guy who got me pregnant. Instantly... This vulnerable woman is the, becomes the hero. The balance of power shifts from all of the men who had abused her to her. And she's now not only safe from ex being executed, she has saved the one who would condemn her. She saved him and his family from becoming extinct. Because in her womb, she's carrying not just one, but two sons. Look at Judah's response in verse 26. When, she knows, when, when he knows that his sin is being exposed, he says, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he didn't sleep with her again. The way his sin is exposed is an example, guys, of the kindness of God. Because he lives what he did, he deserved to die so many times over for his sin. And yet he lives, and he lives with now an heir. He has now, she has now financial security. He has an heir. Nobody has to die in this, at least not yet. His demeanor to her goes from being self-righteous and condemning to honor and respect. Some translations of verse 26 have Judah saying, she's more righteous than I. How is that possible, given the fact that she lied, she, she disguised herself uh, and, and as a prostitute? Judah's not weighing in here on whether or not what the, the actual actions are acceptable to God. He's simply highlighting the rightness of her motivation as opposed to his own lust and his own selfishness. Everyone, everyone is born unrighteous. Nobody is born righteous. Nobody's born with a righteous or a good instinct. But see, God has a plan. 
that's even better than the plan that Tamar concocted here. His plan isn't just to fix things, to put a Band-Aid over or, or to, uh, you know, rub out the mistakes with a rubber. No, his plan is to actually make us righteous, to make us new. Not just in our behavior, but from the inside out. The very last section of this text is postscript of the encounter between Judah and Tamar. She gives birth to twin boys. Perez is considered the firstborn, even though Zerah came out first. Why? Because he stuck his hand up. The midwife tied the cord around it. All through Genesis, the question of which offspring will get the blessing, which son, the, you know, which son is going to be the one that comes and crushes the head of the serpent? That question, it's always there at every birth. Is he the one? Is he the one? And the answer is every single time, the one who receives the blessing is not the one you expect. It's the one God chooses. And the one God chooses is not always the one that we think is right and fair. But God knows what he's doing. And his plans are always good. Which brings us back to the question of why is this story in the Bible at all? What, like, why? Why just not skip over this and say, by the way, Judah had two boys, and then let's get back to Joseph. I said last week that um, Joseph is the beloved son that points forward to another beloved son that will come and rescue the people of God from their sin and the consequences of their sin. But one thing I didn't mention is that that son that Joseph points to is actually not going to be a direct descendant of Joseph's line. Do you know which of the 12 sons is going to be the direct ancestor in the line of Jesus? It's Judah. It's Judah, the abuser, the brother-seller, the sinner. Judah, the father of Perez, the ancestor of King David, the ancestor of King Christ. Judah was not going to be defined by his shame. His shame, the shame was not going to have the last word in his life. It was not going to be defined by his worst moment. God had a plan to rescue him too. Here's Judah's hope, and it's ours too. This is Paul in Galatians 4. Paul writes, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we, Judah, and we, all of those of us in Christ, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. Then God has made you an heir. See, God has a plan for unrighteous people like us. Judah, Tamar, everybody. For vulnerable people and their oppressors, he has a plan for them too. God's son, the offspring of the woman, is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. How is he going to do it? By offering himself. By purchasing unrighteous, vulnerable people with his own blood. And then making us righteous sons and daughters. Heirs. Heirs with full access to the Father. See, God gave Judah an heir so that every person in this room, every person who calls on the name of that heir, would become an heir alongside him. And the way that God's son came into the world was through the mediation of a woman, a woman like Tamar. 
It's no accident that Tamar's name, I don't know if you know this, little Bible trivia here, Tamar's name is the very first name of a woman listed in the New Testament. She is listed specifically by name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, Tamar, the Canaanite. She's one of the heroes. She's not defined by her worst moment. She's not defined by her vulnerability. She's not defined by her lineage or her background. She is defined forevermore by Christ. And so are you. This is good news for every person. Vulnerable people, powerful people, men, women. For every person who is born a slave to sin can be made a son. Shame will never have the last word in your life. Ever. God's kindness is pursuing you. And God's kindness will lead you to repentance and to joy and to hope and salvation. And we forget this so often as Christians. That it is not his judgment. It is not his frustration. It's not even his patience that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. That's what draws us in. His mercy, his new mercies for sinners. That's what draws us in. Satan and his whole army of accusers are no match for his kindness. Whatever you're ashamed of right now, I don't know what it is. We can, get a sh- we, we can feel shame. We can, be, we, can, we can feel buried under the weight of shame as Christians. And yet, whatever you're ashamed of right now, you can bring it to him. Because his grace, his mercy, his kindness is more powerful. It is more than enough. Let him take it. Let him exchange it for beauty, for the joy of being forgiven and restored. Come to the table again today and remember his kindness. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your kindness to us. We don't deserve it, and yet you give it freely. God, as we come to the table, help us to remember because it is so easy to forget. We have a memory problem. And yet, every week we get to gather around the table again to remember what you did. That your son, his body was broken for us. That his blood was poured out for our forgiveness. And we celebrate the fact that his body is no longer in the tomb that he's risen, that one day we will rise with him. That's what we look forward to, God. And so may we proclaim this, may we remember this until you come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.